If you remember from um, the beginning of the retreat, and at different points throughout, we've been we talked about the first noble truth, the truth that birth, aging, and death are dukkha. Association with what we don't like is dukkha. Separation from what we love is dukkha. Not getting what we want is dukkha. And then the Buddha went on to say, in short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. And so the Buddha was describing all the elements of experience, internally, externally, in nature, society, everywhere, nothing left out, are included in what he termed the the five aggregates. And the word aggregate um, sometimes is translated as khandas, and the Pali word means a bundle or a heap or a, a clump of stuff. And so these these five collections or categories are what the five aggregates are referring to. And they're a constellation of continually changing things. And that's what I'd like to talk about tonight, because it's such an important part of our becoming free from clinging, from suffering. And they are rupa, or form, that's the first one, vedana, feeling, sanya, perception, sankharas, mental formations, and then vijnana, consciousness. And I'll be talking about each of them individually and together. And sometimes this teaching um, can feel a bit um, of, of a lot. I know the first time I heard it, it was completely confusing, and I couldn't remember any of them. But over time, this has become such a support and inspiration for my practice. And in fact, I spent a whole month's retreat exploring these, and it was it was very freeing. So the first of these form is all of the physical world, the material world, our own bodies, um, everything that is physical is included in form. And it's the all the others are mental aspects. So feeling, perception, unconsciousness have to do with knowing, and they arise together. And sankhara are what we do with what we know. So that's our relationship to experience. Sometimes it's translated as volition, or also sometimes intention. And each is an umbrella term for all possible instances of that category, past, present, future, um, near and far, uh, internal, external, from the most gross example to the most subtle example. So nothing in our entire experience is left out. And they're often called the five focuses 
of the grasping mind. Because there's an intendency to embody each of them as I am. Each like a reenactment of this reassuring illusion we have that I am. There's a continuity of I. And sometimes we can think of form as where I am, here, in this body. And feeling as how I am, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Perception as what I am. Perceiving. And then the mental formations of why I am acting, what's happening. And then consciousness whereby I am. So, for example, right now, your consciousness is aware of sound, hearing. There's contact with the ear door. And you're hearing words. And perception recognizes the words, understands. And then the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral might arise, depending on um, how you experience them. So you might be bored or interested or um, spaced out. And because of volition, you'll either follow along and listen or space out into a fantasy or fall asleep. One of those or some other option. But the important part of all this is that it's really the basis the, um, of how self is created. And because of that, how dukkha comes to be, how we come to be suffering. And it's essential to our understanding of the noble truths. Because whenever we identify or cling to any aspect of the aggregates, any of them as I or mine, there's a contraction and a limitation. Carol talked the other night about liberation through non-clinging and how that liberation through non-clinging had a feeling of uplift, brightness, of being awake, openness. And it's the happiness of not clinging to the five aggregates. And the Buddha considered himself only to be perfectly enlightened once he fully understood these five, um, car- these five qualities, categories, in two ways. Their conditioned and impermanent nature. So they're arising and passing away. And they're the fact that they're conditioned, they're not who we are. They're, they come into being due to causes of conditions, not permanent. And they cease, they disappear. And it's said that the difference between a Buddha and an ordinary worldling like us is that we experience them and life as five grasped processes. And the Buddha simply experiences them as processes without grasping of mine or I. 
And when we start to contemplate them, what we what it exposes is all the patterning and identification that we have in our lives, all the unseen biases, the things that lead to harm, and the unconscious ones that condition um, us from our society, the ways we've been defined by others, by society, the ways we define ourselves and others that are limiting and reducing and cause harm. And it's possible to hold the five aggregates in a way that leads to healing and benefit. As Thich Nahan calls them, rivers. And he says, seeing deeply into the rivers of the five aggregates, Avalokiteshvara, who's um, synonymous with Kuan Yin, discovered the empty nature of them all and became free, overcame suffering. So they make up our, our objective experience, these five rivers. And I'd like to invite you all tonight to go on this journey to see deeply into them and to have a sense of directly experiencing as you listen. They're not something we can figure out. It's more just to see what connects for you. So if it's not making sense, that's okay. You don't have to become the one who doesn't understand. Simply allow it to settle and see what happens. One of the keys to understanding them is being aware of their impermanent, unsatisfactory, and conditioned nature. That's the same three characteristics we've each been talking about. Because when we directly experience every aspect of experience as subject to change, it undermines the identification with them. The less identified we are with the aggregates, the less we'll suffer when they change. Just take the aging body, for example. As the aging body changes, it doesn't feel like me anymore. When you look in the mirror, it doesn't look like what you'd want to see anymore. And the more allowing we are, the less identified we are, the less we'll suffer. In one of the suttas, um, and this took place um, in Jetta's Grove, the Buddha is talking to the monks about this, clinging to the aggregates. And he says, whatever is not yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. And then he went on to say, and what is not yours? Form is not yours. Feelings are not yours. Perception, mental formations, consciousness, none of them are yours. Therefore, let go of them. 
And so this is a teaching to let go. And he didn't say the five aggregates of our suffering. He wasn't telling us, teaching us to get rid of them, to deny the body or have aversion for all of this. Rather, to change the relationship to them from grasping aversion and delusion to understand them as they really are. Impersonal, impermanent, and unsatisfactory. And um, there's a chant um, that the monastics do about um, the five aggregates. And I'll just do the English part because I found it really helpful. And it's just... It does it for each of the aggregates, but I'll do it just in a simple way. Attachment to form is dukkha. Form is impermanent. Form is not self. And so for each one. Attachment to perception is dukkha. And so forth. So, And just by saying that, over and over for a month, I got it. (laughs) Because in moments when I was really holding to some painful sense of self, this little voice would come. Attachment to mental formations is dukkha. Yes. (laughs) And so forth. Form is not self. Ah, thank you. And so it's something that works and seeps in. And there's a lovely, um, I think this is from the Terragata, that's, um, where is it? The, um, The teachings of Buddhist women. Here it is. Um, And this is in Savati. And the bhikkhuni, Sila, dresses and comes down and sits at the foot of a tree to meditate. And then Mara comes. And Mara wants to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in Sila and to make her fall away from concentration and generally give her a bad time. And so he says, By whom has this puppet been created? Where is the maker of the puppet? Where has the puppet arisen? Where does the puppet cease? And it occurs to Sila, this is Mara, trying to make me fall away from my practice. And so she replies to him, this puppet is not made by itself, nor is misery made by another. It's come to be dependent on a cause. With the cause's breakup, it will cease. As when a seed is sown in a field, it grows depending on factors. It requires the soil's nutrients and moisture. Just so, the aggregates and elements, the basis of sensory contact, have come to be dependent on a cause. With the causes break up, they will cease. 
and Mara realizes the bhikkhuni Sila knows me. Sad and disappointed, he disappears on the spot. So she didn't get hooked. He wanted her to be identified and disturbed by it. So we cling to the aggregates in a variety of ways. The first is appropriation, mine. And that's similar to tanha. I own this. This belongs to me. I can control it. And it could be our body or it could be an object. And then there's an ident- then there's identif- identification. And the Pali word is mana. This I am. My thoughts. My thoughts. We identify with our thoughts. I'm greedy. I'm depressed. I'm an idiot. I'm the greatest. We I- that's identification. And then the last one is ditti, self-view. And that's sticky. This is myself. That's the deepest one. And um, I love to tell this particular story. And I was hoping James would be here because this retreat um, that it happened on, I was teaching with James many years ago in um, BC, where I live. And the year before I taught this retreat with James, People bring all their, their, um, I bring a whole supply of cushions and zabutons and zafus and other people do. And then so that we can sit, we don't have our own center. And so I'd done that at the end of the retreat. My favorite zafu that was my first three months retreat zafu wasn't there at the end of the retreat. And so I was sad, but that was okay. I hoped someone would have a a nice time with it, or whatever. And then when I talk with James the next year, lo and behold, this gentleman shows up, shows up and sits, brings, bringing my Zafu, and sits down on it. And I'm horrified. <laughs> I can see, I can feel, he's got my Zafu. You know, this sort of primitive <laughs> selfing around this my Zafu. But then I began to see him as the one who had taken my Zafu. And so at first I realized that was the only lens I could see him through. And I said, James, you have to do interviews with him. (laughs) 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 I'm not starting from (laughs) a neutral place. (laughs) And so then I I sort of sat with this for a bit and I thought, come on. Um, this is workable. And so eventually, of course, I did see him and, um, you know, I began to watch him and see that he didn't have an awareness of personal space. He picked up someone else's bench and took it to try it out. (laughs) And so, you know, we had to talk a little bit about boundaries. But what was... (laughs) (laughs) But what was fascinating to me was how quickly... Um, I, it became mine, and he was the one. And it's seeing him through that lens. And so um, it's, 
it's it's fascinating to watch that and to see the suffering that causes that's caused when we don't recognize that that's what's happening so it isn't about grasping um this not me not mine um not myself as a concept we don't want to make this into a concept but more to realize the way things actually are. They're not solid and static. It's changing. Um, And as the Buddha would say, the uninstructed worldling, when the body changes, when situations change, becomes agitated and anxious. And those who know the Dharma understand they don't cling and they're not agitated. And the Buddha also taught these five ways of seeing, it's called, um, that I found really helpful to guide my practice. And it's a way of, it's an analogy or a way of seeing the five aggregates. So form is like foam. It's like the foam, it just dissolves so quickly. Form is like foam, it's on the river and then it's gone. And we can experience that sense of not being so solid. can even sense it now as I'm talking. Or I can. And there's a softness that comes. Feelings, Vedana, is like bubbles. They arise and burst so quickly. Feelings come and go and change like bubbles. And so holding on to them is pointless. They're changing so fast. Perception is like a mirage. Also, it's an illusion. There's a fabrication of something. I'll talk about that more in a minute. And Sankara, mental formations, the analogy is like plantain. And it's this um, plant that has a sort of many sheaths. It's like um, each with its own sort of characteristic in a way. And just in the same as all the mind states are like that. There's many phenomena in, within each one. So the term sankara also includes perception. It includes many of the different mind states that come and go as a result of contact and feeling tone. And then consciousness is like a magic show. And again, we'll talk more about that. So form, a little more about rupa or form, the physical world of our experience that we're directly knowing right now, the elemental aspect of it. And as our mindfulness deepens and becomes more stable, we can see through the veils of concepts that we have about form. And you can sense that now, the direct experience of the body, free from our concepts and ideas about the body. And as we have this continuity of attention on form, 
that continuity of attention on things that are changing begins to dispel the illusion of solidity. And you've seen that when you've put your attention on um, a sensation in the body, how it changes and becomes less solid. And the boundaries start to shift and there starts to be, um, I think Carol was talking about the mutuality of non-separation. We're not so separate from life. There's a, um, when I'm doing this, I don't feel so separate from the air it's moving in. We're not giving up the level of form where it's simply connecting with a deeper reality. This is from um, Ajahn Chah. He says, you should know both the universal and the personal, the realm of form and the freedom not to cling to them. The forms of the world have their place. But in another way, there's nothing there. To be free, we need to respect both these truths. So we're just sitting here and hearing is arising and passing. Sensations are coming and going. I sat um, a retreat at the Forest Refuge one year and there were a number of other teachers sitting and um, Martine um, Batchelor was sitting the retreat and as she, she left early and she left a note on the board saying goodbye and then at the bottom of it she put who's reading this? And suddenly it was, oh, just a moment of reading. It was powerful. And so we're open to that possibility of not being so constricted. And when we contemplate the elements as the Buddha taught, not me, not mine, not myself, just earth element or just air element. It's the same thing. When we did the big mind meditation the other morning, just points of sensation, just things arising and passing. And for some of us, at times when we hear that, not every time, there's a sense for a few moments of spaciousness, of not being the center of the universe, but of not being separate from space, from awareness, and a a vastness of that. So, attachment to form is dukkha, form is impermanent, Form is not self. Vedana, feeling, bubbles, 
And you've heard a lot about feeling tone and the changing nature of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and how they condition reaction of wanting, aversion, confusion. And as it's said in the Sutta, whenever feelings arise, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate fading away, letting go of feeling. Contemplating thus, one doesn't cling to anything in the world. And when one doesn't cling to anything, there's no agitation. When there's no agitation, one attains Nibbāna. Bhikkhu Analyo, when he's talking about feeling tone, often says, keep calmly knowing change. So that when we're aware of the pleasant and unpleasant feelings, before we start to move into holding on to them, keep calmly knowing change. Because it happens so fast. A feeling tone arises, pleasant or unpleasant, and pretty soon I'm feeling this. There's an identification. And if it's unpleasant, we become the one who feels. And then very quickly, what follows that is perhaps a mental formation or sankara, this shouldn't be happening to me. Or if we like it, this should continue happening to me. And so it's so quick. And we're asked to see with proper wisdom. This is not me. This I am not. This is not myself. Again, attachment to feelings are dukkha. Feelings are impermanent and not self. And you can explore a little bit with feeling tone when, you, as soon as you notice them. And sort of notice, how is identification happening? Am I making the feeling mine? Or am I kind of in the feeling? Like the feeling is owning me, so to speak. And you can start to see the subtle ways that feeling gets um, solidified. And when we pay close attention, whether it's to pleasant or unpleasant, it doesn't matter, you start to see the rapid coming and going of moments of pleasant or unpleasant and how quickly one becomes the other becomes the other and that constant change. And also, we see that as long as certain conditions stay the same, that will condition a pleasant feeling tone. Once the conditions change, they might become unpleasant or pleasant. So our reactions to them are feeding them. If there's an unpleasant sensation and we react with aversion, then there's more unpleasant. If we reach for pleasant and so forth. (laughs) You've heard, you have heard all this, so I don't want to 
um, create more unpleasant by repeating it. So, but we do start to see that while the pleasant and unpleasant feeling tones are always coming and going and coming and going, they're always going to be here. The grasping and clinging are optional. The fact that the feelings are coming and going, we can't stop. But the clinging and grasping are optional. There's a tendency to believe it's not okay to have uncomfortable feelings. And we usually take it further. And if the feeling isn't okay, then we become the one who isn't okay. Do you see the extra? This feeling isn't okay, and now I'm not okay. So if there are bad feelings here, it equals I'm bad or I'm inadequate or something. So there's a double identification (laughs) in a way. So we both believe and behave as though it's permanent. It's a permanent attribute. So trauma often happens like that. Something really painful and very, very difficult will happen to a child, very young child, who doesn't yet have any sense of separation from mother or father, for, for example. Something bad happens, and it's very unpleasant, and the child believes that's me. And there's an internalization of, I'm bad, when it was just something bad happened. And that gets carried and kind of solidified, especially if bad things continue to happen. And so it's helpful to recognize the depth of that kind of conditioning. And the same with a belief system that somebody's been culturally um, bathed in. It starts to become a deeply internalized belief system. So perception, sanya, that arises from contact with an object there's very quickly a naming, a recognition. And it can be from a simple naming of blue, green, whatever it is, to concepts, assumptions, beliefs about things. In particular, the belief in a solid and permanent sense of self. And perception is more than labeling. It's um, more than language. It's pre-verbal. Babies perceive and things in certain ways, and those perceptions get deepened by experience. So the act of perceiving and how we perceive is forming experiences which lead to further kinds of perceptions, all of which may be illusion <laughs> or delusion that we're not aware of. Appearance of objects depends on how we look at them. Pain can be be perceived as something bad and wrong. Or it could be perceived as changing sensations. Certain energies are felt can be interpreted as excitement, 
the same energy can be interpreted as anxiety. And so there's different ways because of the connotations we give them. And then um, there's individual and collective identities around assumptions and misperceptions. Um, We can have a distorted perception. Carol was talking about non-Kilesa-driven perception. Perception that's not colored by those veils. And we can have wisdom-clarified perception, where we're seeing things as they are. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of these unseen biases that happen with misperception um, that gets so solidified and that are so harmful in our culture. Um, I've been reading um, a new book written by Gregory Boyle, and he's the man who wrote Tattoos on the Heart, which is a book about gangs in L.A. He's a, a priest who works with the gangs, and they're just it's a beautiful book, and the new book is very similar. And there are many, many, many stories that he has about these young people. Some of them are African-American, some are white, some are Latino. um, But they all have in common poverty and a really, really painful background, whether it's abandonment, um, drugs, abuse, the way they've been treated as small children. All of them have been abandoned in a very deep way. And are seen as um, not worthy of anything. And so with these young people, he there are many stories of him taking them on different speaking tours because they're gradually learning to experience themselves as whole, as lovable, as worthy, just, um, just through being, just in their being. And so um, there's one, one that comes to mind right now, um, a young man who's been a gang member and he'd been in prison, and he's a big guy with many tattoos and scars and different things, and um, is taken into um, a group of middle-class educated judges, I think, or something like that. And just coming in um, and looking like that, there's a certain view of him. And he can feel, um, Gregory can feel their perception of him and how they're seeing him and holding him. And as he begins to talk about his childhood experience of being a little boy of six, lighting matches, his mother sees him. And it's hard even for me to talk about this. She holds his hand on the element of the stove in punishment of a hot, red-hot element. And the first thing he remembers is lying on the floor in the bathroom with his hand in the toilet 
and the terrible pain. And from then on, further abandonment and brutality. And that's just one of many stories. But as he's telling this story, he begins to have emotion about it. Because these are the things that he took drugs for to avoid thinking about. And that he ran on the street to avoid thinking about. And now the vulnerability is showing through. And everyone in the room feels the empathy and is seeing this human being in a completely different way. And he and the other young man with him who shares a similar kind of story receive rounds of applause. And the people are made to realize, look how you see people. Really question the way you see yourself, the way we perceive each other. And um, notice that. So I kind of got carried away there. (laughs) But um, it's so common in our world for misperception and unseen biases to happen and to cause harm. And if we pay attention with mindfulness to perception as it comes and goes, we can see how perception is changing. We can see how the way we're seeing something isn't so solid. And it helps to loosen our views and attachments. Is this really so? how I'm seeing this? Is there an exaggeration, an over-dramatization, or whatever it might be? Am I seeing this person through fresh eyes, or am I seeing him as the man who took my zafu? or, Or whatever it is. So that's why perception is like a mirage, an illusion. And the challenge is to notice how we're holding it. Because often our initial perception is inaccurate because it's so conditioned by all our past experience. Um, And we can also see how the initial perception conditions feedback loops and perpetuates the belief system. All this type of people are like this. All these people are like that. It creates division. And we can notice how when we apply labels to things, it affects how perception and um, feeling tone go back and forth and impact each other. We can have what's called selective perception, where we choose to focus on certain things or certain aspects of a certain thing. Fascination conditioning, I think it's called um, in psychology, where you just fixate on a certain particular aspect. And then don't see everything else about it. And I think the famous one is of the people who are watching a ball game, and they're told to watch the people in the blue shirts. Really pay attention to the people in the blue shirts or whatever whatever it is. 
And then while they're doing that, and to notice if they make mistakes or whatever. I can't remember the direction. And as they're doing that, somebody walks right in front of them in a gorilla suit. And nobody sees the gorilla. Not one of them. They say, no, it didn't happen. And then they <laughs> they replay and show them, and of course there's the gorilla. But they were so busy looking at the blue shirts that they missed that aspect. And so the same thing applies. And also noticing how well the way we label things um, impacts how it affects our feelings. Um, Okay, I'm not going to tell that story. I was being seduced. (laughs) So this solid sense of self that we're perceiving is really constantly changing all the time. And um, we create an ongoing sense of self, and we don't realize we're doing it. So many times a day, um, we're taking birth into a different sense of self. It's happening constantly. Anab Tupton, um, who James mentioned the other night, talks about it like wearing a set of clothes. They're useful because we don't, it's not, it's too cold to go around naked. But we don't have to identify with each piece of clothing that we put on. And so to think of the senses of self as clothing. Sometimes they're useful, but they're not who we are. But we forget that. We identify. We do need to have a continuity of a sense of self through our lives. When people have brain injuries or when they develop dementia, sometimes they lose that continuity of a sense of self, and it can be very frightening. People don't recognize themselves in the mirror, or maybe they don't recognize a child or a partner in their family. So we do need that. It's not about getting rid of it, but it's being able to not hold it as all of who I am, to not let that limit us. And it can be a relief to release our ideas about self. Um, And to feel there's nothing solid underneath all these senses of self. It's actually a relief um, to see them or to sense them falling away. And it's also helpful to get a sense of how they feel when we start um, putting them on. Sometimes in my life, I can feel Dr. Ross coming on. And I can have the felt sense in my body of this going into action, the tone of my voice, the expression. It's embarrassing you know, to see that particular identity taking hold. Or in certain situations, if I'm with siblings, when I become a 14-year-old self. You know, to just feel what that's like coming on and the, for, for there to be a possibility of not taking birth and acting from that place. Um, it's such a relief when we don't have to identify with the 
inadequate one or the wise one or whatever it was. It's helpful. Sometimes there can be fear as we let go of the senses of self. It can be frightening. But in my experience, over and over, the more they feel fall away, the more there's a sense of relief and freedom and ease. There's less neediness. There's more ease. And perception can take us out of immediacy, that need to um, anticipate every moment, to project what we think will be next, rather than allowing the freshness of the moment to show itself. So mental formations. All of the mental states are included in this particular aggregate. Thoughts, moods, emotions, mind states, wholesome ones, unwholesome ones. All the ways we have of relating to experience. And they only become a problem when we attach and identify with them in some way reinforcing the sense of self. And you've seen how quickly that happens when you become the negative mind states and act as though it's permanent and true. What I find so helpful is not only um, to remember not me, not mine, just despair, just overwhelm, to notice overwhelm is arising. Disgust is arising rather than I'm disgusting (laughs) or whatever it is or I'm a failure. A moment of failing is arising. And not identifying with that is such a relief. Guilt arising rather than I'm guilty I'm so bad, which leads into a whole sense of, of story of what I shouldn't done and if only and if etc. And just a moment of, oh, this is a moment of guilt and there might be sadness or regret. But it's not who we are. It's arising due to causes and conditions. And of course, we want the one who knows to be I, not the one who doesn't know. We want the wise one to be (laughs) this one, not the one who isn't. Um, But it's also a relief not to. Um, Somebody um, um, in my life a a few weeks ago said, oh, you're so wise. And I said, no, that was just a wise moment arising. And that gives me the freedom to be, <laughs> to have an, a stupid a moment arising <laughs> on other occasions. And it's actually a relief. It's great to appreciate, wow, a wise moment arose, I'm grateful. Gratitude is arising. Um, 
And also then there's some lightness when an inadequate moment arises or a moment of making a mistake. And this is really freeing too. And I found this um, to be so helpful when I'm... um, One of my intentions is to try and work with and be with divisions between people and to heal some of the divisiveness when I can and to try and bring people together with different views. And sometimes in doing that, I make mistakes. I say something that's not skillful. And what used to happen when I did that was I would feel bad. Oh my God, I made a mistake. And then all my attention is on me and I'm not connecting with the person whose feelings have been hurt. But if I know, oh, a mistake happened, I I can really be present for any pain that may have happened. And I'm not, they don't have to take care of me and be sorry because I feel guilty, if that makes sense. And so there's a freedom for to grow, to be able to hear someone's opinion without feeling I have to be right or I'm taking it personally. There's an honesty and a humility and a gratitude when humility can arise instead of self-righteousness and knowing that both will happen and being able to take it lightly. So, I need to say a few words about vijnana, but clearly I could go on and on about (laughs) sankhara for a long time. So, it's that um, mirror-like, simple knowing. Consciousness in the five aggregates just simply means knowing, every moment of knowing. That... There's a meeting of an object and knowing over and over. And it too is not permanent. And there isn't, uh, we subtly subtly identify with the one who knows again and again. But a permanent self-sufficient self can't be found within or apart from any of the aggregates. A moment of knowing is arising. And what can be helpful, um, and I learned this from Joseph Goldstein, is hearing being known. Taking the I out. And again, rather than saying, I'm sad, I'm inadequate, I'm comparing. Comparing's arising. So is rather than I. Known rather than I'm doing. So it's more of a receiving of what's actually unfolding rather than reaching in and becoming. So we can view any perception as a moment of knowing. It's just happening. And then there's no I to be upset about getting it wrong 
or getting it right. Those identities are falling away. A moment of getting it right. Hooray! Oh no, now I'm proud. A moment of getting it wrong. You know, just one after the other. Um, um, And so I'd like to... um, sort of come to the end with this cartoon that I found in the New Yorker last month. And there's a big bear lying on the psychiatrist's couch, and it has a box of Kleenex, and it's sort of crying and blowing its nose. And the bear says, Papa bear was too much. Mama bear wasn't enough. And I always had to be just right. It's a burden. (laughs) So a moment of being just right (laughs) and too much (laughs) and not enough, all passing. It's a joy to have identities dissolve. A mind can cause so much suffering when so much joy is possible. So may you find freedom through relaxing around the five aggregates. Thank you. And let's just have a moment of stillness. And notice who's listening. Who's feeling and sensing and perceiving. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.